International Week Totally Football Show. World Cup fever is happening. Eager nation plans for time off work as England face world champions Germany, including half the England starting 11. Elsewhere, playoffs, Ireland versus the Danes and that Sweden-Italy clash. They're the marquee fixtures, so named because they'll be intense. We'll canvas opinion on those and get more on the road to Russia. New Zealand's fans and their trip all the way to Peru. We have a poignant moment as Pirlo announces his retirement. Really? Which MLS club? And say moise, 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 we're ready for the bad times at West Ham. It's the Totally Football Show. That's right, everybody. Hello. I'm happy to say that here to make sense of a confusing week, we've got Raphael Honigstein. Hello, James. We've got uh, Michael Cox. Hi, James. And we've also got Matt Scott. Hello, James. Matt Scott mounting a controversial defence of Tony Pulis. Yeah. Who was very much a trending topic for us mm. on Wednesday evening when we went and did Totally Football Show live at the Glee Club in Birmingham. Many thanks to everyone who joined us there and the lovely folks because we had a great night. It talks a lot of things about football in the Midlands, that kind of thing. And Rafa, we've got another one coming up later on this month, which you're going to be part of. Yeah, I'm very excited to be there. Right. At the O2. At the O2. Well, at the little Indigo. Little O2, yeah. yeah, and hopefully Tony Pulis will be a topic there. Matt, we'll come to you later yeah, on why Tony Pulis is an absolute footballing good. Uh, I want to begin, and you know I do, with England and the clash with Germany at Wembley. Always an exciting fixture. Always redolent in history, this one. Rafa, they must be fired up for this in Germany, are they? Um, I think that's putting it a little bit strongly. Um, it is a friendly, but there is something quite interesting happening because there's so much clamour for a starting place in the squad. No one's actually been daring to pull out um, the way they used to. You know, Bastian Schweinsteiger never turned up, I think, in four years for friendlies. Everybody wants to play. And uh, it's it's been taken rather seriously. I mean, they have really interesting opposition lined up until um, the World Cup starts. Uh, France is next. Then I think it's Argentina and Spain. The World Cup qualifiers was 10 out of 10, but it was really a procession. It was um, none of the teams could could realistically challenge Germany. So these are that's, that's the best you can get as far as mm. kind of finding out where the team could be making that transition happen um, since 2014, experimenting a lot with personnel and lineups, And Löw takes it quite seriously. Well, you can wave goodbye to all those easy fixtures from qualifying because now you're taking on England. Yeah. yeah. Um, and at Wembley. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you're Half laughing, but England, England caused Germany loads of trouble um, at the Lukas Podolski testimonial um, back, in, uh, back in March. Why are you laughing? It's <laughs> just... There's a slight bathos in that sentence. <laughs> you won, uh, as I say, you, Germany have won, uh, let's see, the last, was it last four visits to Wembley? The last three visits. Most recently, in November 2013. Do you know who scored the only goal in that game? Yes, I do know that. It's Per Matisaka. Yeah. yeah. And you're doing a book on him. Can we talk about that? I'm doing a book with him. Oh, with him? Yeah. It's lovely. Yeah, it's lovely. Right, we'll talk about the book that you've, you've just dropped <clears throat> a little bit later on. But as... Matt, you were hinting there. It's it's half an England team. So many people pulling out. Basically, the Spurs lot: Jordan yeah. Henderson, Raheem Sterling, Fabian Delph. Can we use the under seventeens or the under twenty ones at this point? We've got a whole raft of of junior sides who've done really, really well. Why is he called up? Who's it? Cork and Livermore. Yeah, well, Livermore has been part of his squads, depressingly, because this midfield is is so bereft of. Of options, but we have um, all these junior sides that have just gone and done yeah, really well. No, yeah, we not... I mean, Ward, <clears throat> you know, Ward Prowse is unfortunately unable to get into his club side. This is the difficulty, you know. If you, you've got a player of, of his caliber, I, I, I like a lot of. I mean, I think he's as good a delivery. He's got as good a delivery as anybody since David Beckham in the English game. Um, so he's somebody that I think they should be looking at. He's very good on the ball, um, but they, if he can't get into his own club team, by the token that he's raised about. Jack Wilshere's unavailability from his own point of view because he isn't playing for Arsenal. You can't go and pick kids who, who don't break into their Premier League sides. And this is very much a problem that we have in the Premier League. Those young boys who are doing so well internationally are unable to break into the, the teams at the ages of 17 to 21. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out that Jack Cork, while um, not a spectacular player, has played very well, very consistently for five or six years in the Premier League. So much as there are some very young kids, I, I prefer to uh, to be looking at someone like Cork who uses the ball well okay. and has experience of playing against you know top-class opponents. OK, anyone else you'd like to see in there, Michael? 
No, not really. I, I do think it's quite uninspiring. Um, I mean, England's first choice 11 for the first time in four or five years, I think, looks quite good. Mm. But it's just so many players out. I mean, I, I genuinely think the players who are out would beat the, the players who are in, even in their current state of injuries. Because clearly half of them are not injured. Even if even if they're only 70%, I'd back the injured team to beat the first team. Would would Germany at this point, say nine months ahead of a World Cup, with some absences and a f- kind of high-profile friendly, but ultimately a bit of a, a blank canvas of an international fixture, would they, and a really exciting set of young players, not just the under-17s, but the under-21s, the under-20s, etc., would they not be thinking, I'm not going to call up someone who's done reasonably well in the Premier League, but one of the... One of the young players to give them a bit of experience, blood them for the future. Mm, I th- unless you realistically think that one of these young kids will be in a position to go to Russia, it doesn't really make any sense. You have so few. Opportunities. What about the tournament after that? Yeah, but the tournament after that in football, it doesn't really work like that. You know, somebody looks amazing at twenty, then at twenty-two, for whatever reason, loses form, doesn't quite produce, has a problem with a manager at club level. You can't really say, you know, the guy is going to be my big guy for the Euros. I'm going to play him now in November, uh, two and a half earlier, uh, two and a half years earlier to see that he's going to be car part of the team. It doesn't really work like that. But I think Gareth Southgate has himself diagnosed a problem a couple of weeks ago when he said some of these English players, England players, are too assured of themselves when it comes to their position in the squad. The fact that they're all pulling out really just proves his point because mm. if they were a bit more worried they would turn up and try everything to be in a position to play because they'd be so afraid of getting dropped. But even Delph, I think, at this point knows that he doesn't have to show up. He'll still probably has a very good chance of getting called up if he continues to play as well as he does for Man City. You, you, I think it's interesting you talk, you're asking about Germany. What would they do? But let's mm. go back to... So England done really well in the age groups. Let's go mm. back to when Germany won the under-21s and, and then went on and won the World Cup uh, the, the following tournament cycle with those players as, as the core of it. The majority of them, the Ozils, the Müllers and all, the, all the, those guys who went through and, and lifted that trophy were playing club football. Uh, you, know, you don't see that here. And, and Ertzel was, was, by the time of that World Cup, having been under-21, was at Real Madrid, I seem to recall. So... You know, this is this is not what we're getting in this country. The boys, no, the, the, the young boys, aren't. They moving. won the Euro, uh, the Euros in two thousand nine. That's right. So it took them a few more years before okay. before they won the World Cup. But yeah, that was a very strong, strong group of players. I mean, sometimes it happens. They were sometimes given their chances, my point, and they're not being given their chance. I mean, they were given their chance here. in two thousand ten because at that point they were coming through, and there weren't really that many established players ahead of them. Um, you know, their generation was beginning to play really well and uh, they were taken over from a generation that had really failed to produce that many exciting players. You had Balak and you had Oliver Kahn and you had Sebastian Deisler, who unfortunately never made it. Um, so as a team, as a nation, people were crying out for Uzils and Kadiras to mm, show up. Completely and different tanks. to the England situation. <laughs> well, indeed, yeah. yeah. Uh, Michael? No, I just agree with Rafa about kind of not just chucking in youngsters. I think when you look at England, the classic example is... Theo Walcott, you know, he was mm. thrown in at 2006. He hasn't started a single tournament game in his entire career. So that was a waste of a slot. And uh, four years ago, or three years ago, um, at left back, Hodgson chose to take Luke Shaw, you know, in the belief that Luke Shaw was going to be a regular for years to come, but it didn't work out for mm. Luke Shaw. And I mean, that, that tournament, Leighton Baines, I thought was England's weakest player. And we had Ashley Cole, who had probably been England's most consistent performer, sitting at home because England were looking to the future. I think you've got to try and uh, pick the best team you can at, at any one moment. All right. I mean, Brazil has certainly done it in the past, taking people like Ronaldo and Kaká along, but maybe that's because they were Ronaldo and <laughs> yeah. Kaká. Um, hey, just uh, you mentioning uh, Germany's procession through the qualifying. One particularly exciting stat. Ten games, ten wins, of course. 43 goals scored. Those goals shared by 21 different players. That's remarkable. 21 different players, 43 goals. Oh, that's 4.3 goals a game. Yeah, but I mean, the opposition was very, very poor. Right. Um, usually you get at least one half-decent side, um, and we didn't, we didn't have those. Niall either. Parker would like you to nominate a potential breakout star for Germany at the next World Cup. I'm thinking, Lee, I mean, from a Premier League perspective, it's perhaps not low, no longer a breakout star, but I think on, a, on an international, international scene, I think Leroy Sané could make this his tournament the way that Mesut Ozil did in 2010. OK. Um, I think he's got a really good chance of getting into the starting eleven. I mean, there's so much competition for those 
attacking midfield, sort of half striking positions mm. behind the number nine, if there is a number nine. Um, but with Marco Reus continuing to be injured and Mesut Ozil not maybe even being guaranteed starter, I think Sané has a great chance of uh, adding that bit of pace up front that Germany have been missing at times. That's all coming up on Friday night. So many more delightful and perhaps more meaningful matches as the as the playoffs get underway. We're going to be looking at Denmark Ireland right after this. Tweet us at the Totally Football Show. Find us on Facebook and check us out at thetotallyfootballshow.com. Denmark Ireland. Ireland shocked Wales. One obstacle remains on their road to Russia. It's in Copenhagen. And then back in Dublin. Ireland taking on Denmark. The eighth time they've been in the playoffs for a major tournament. They've gone through a less than comforting three times out of those eight. But what awaits them in Copenhagen? Well, Niels Harald, a commentator and producer at Danish Eurosport, a Dane, <laughs> to speak to our Ian McIntosh. Niels, Denmark finished second behind Poland uh, in a group with Montenegro, Romania, Armenia and Kazakhstan. 20 points, 20 goals scored, eight conceded. Was that seen as a success or a failure that you didn't win the group? Well, it was a success in the respect that last autumn we all thought we were dead and gone because we lost two games in a row. We lost against Montenegro at home and a abysmal performance away in in Poland. So everybody thought this is going to be difficult. But during the summer, something changed within the team, the way we play, the approach. So we won against Poland 4-0. And since then, it's been really good. It's, it's looking rather good for the team. Now, we know all about Christian Eriksen been so good for Spurs this season and has scored in his last six games with uh, with Denmark and Kasper Schmeichel and Nicholas Bentner's back of course but who else do we need to look out for? I would look after Thomas Delaney uh, currently playing in Werder Bremen in Germany he's been really excellent for the team and he's been adjusting well to the new system Andreas Christensen has been doing really good for Chelsea would be interesting to see in the starting lineup. not sure about that but it's uh, those two players would be good to look out for and uh, Thomas Delaney of course Wikipedia tells us that his paternal great grandfather actually moved from from Ireland to the United States due to the great famine yeah, I, I've heard about that, and we're actually trying to make something about it. I'm working on the on the preview for the for the game on my television station, and we've been uh, investigating that. I'm not really sure how deep it runs, but it, it's a part of his blood, definitely. Now, what kind of football do uh, do Denmark play? Well, we we tried before to play very handsome football. You know, last autumn. Where all went horribly wrong, we played with uh, three defenders at the back and tried to sort of control the games. But uh, during the summer, there was chats between Christian Eriksen and Kasper Schmeichel and Oga Harreide, the coach, and they decided to go more direct. Uh, I believe that Kasper Schmeichel was heavily involved in that uh, decision. So they played direct more, uh, actually a, a little British with uh, long balls and, uh, and uh, you know, tall players up front who can, uh, who can uh, challenge the defence. Who are you most afraid of in this island team? We fear the team as a whole. It's a very strong unit. They are very well known for coming out, you know, like warriors. But of course, we have eyes on James McLean. We have eyes on uh, somebody like uh, Shane Duffy, who can do really wonders in the air. And we we believe that uh, Daryl Murphy also can be very dangerous. But of course, Ireland will come to Copenhagen and let Denmark come against them. Let, let, let's see what they can do against us, because because it's it's a Danish team uh, with uh, full of uh, full of optimism right now. Nils, Denmark missed out on Brazil 2014. Didn't make it out of the groups in 2010. Are you going to do it this time? I do sincerely hope so. But I tell you what, Copenhagen is going to be full of Irish people, and that's going to be quite decisive because the Danish crowd is not a loud one. But I believe that over two legs, I think Danish, the Danish team might have like 55-45 against Ireland. But anything can happen. And uh, since we lost to Sweden in the last uh, playoff we were in, it's going to be difficult anyhow. So that's how you pronounce Christensen, eh? Every day is school day, Matt Scott. <laughs> I think Ireland will win that. Ah, there you go, Michael. Well, that tie. Yeah. Really? Why are you so surprised, Matt? Because... Christensen and others are good players. Um, it's a clash of two different, very different styles, and I would just hope that that Wright should win. <laughs> Tend to agree. Football might be the winner. Yeah, well, let's see. but you're saying football won't be. The no, winner. you're saying fo- yeah, anti-football. Uh, I feel like Ireland will do a job. I think I'll sit deep and nullify Eriksson, and then Denmark's fullbacks aren't very good. Uh, Nils there was very excited about Delaney. Uh, 
Is that someone who you'll speak of? He's, he's playing quite well mm-hmm. uh, for Werder this season. I mean, Werder having a very hard season. It's very hard for individuals to really stand out in a team that's been playing against uh, relegation and already got rid of their manager um, in uh, late October, early November it might have been. Um, but no, he's, he's looked quite good. Okay. Now, the other big game... Oh, you've got, of course got the ones going on Thursday night, which may have been played by the time you hear this. We talked about them on Monday, Croatia. Up against Greece, Northern Ireland hosting Switzerland with the second legs on Sunday. Do you have a preference there, Michael, who you'd like to go through? Northern Ireland against Switzerland, Croatia, I'd, Greece? I'd like to see Croatia go through because yeah. they're always entertaining at major tournaments and I don't think you can say the, the same for Greece. I think Greece are, you know, the Greece we've seen over the last five or six years. They find it difficult to break down weak teams, but when they're up against a strong team, they almost kind of bring others down to their level and I, I do think this will be closer than um, you would expect Croatia got a great midfield uh, right. Modric and Rakitic and I think Milan Badel is, is a really important player in the holding role What about Northern Ireland against Switzerland? I think Switzerland is strong for, I mean Switzerland were really unlucky not to go through from the group um, I think the thing about that is Northern Ireland are very good at sitting deep and narrow mm. and conceding space to the opposition but uh, Ligsteiner and Rodriguez are maybe the best fullback duo in in year, well, they were three years ago. I guess Lickstein is a little bit past his best. But in terms of attacking potential, those two fullbacks are really good. So I can't really see Northern Ireland hanging on there. Okay. You can get it, Shaka. You can get it. <laughs> they are a classic, classic counter-attacking team. You can get at them through the centre of the midfield and in set pieces. They are very, very dangerous. I mean, you know better than, than most that uh, they can score well, goals. That, that game Northern taking Ireland. place Thursday night. So we'll, we'll see. I mean, by the time, uh, as I say, many people... We'll hear this. They'll know whether whether or not that came to pass. Second legs anywhere on Sunday. If Northern Ireland don't go through, by the way, could Michael O'Neill then become one of the hot tickets for the the managerial merry-go-round? You would have thought he'd be a hot ticket after the Euros, but uh, nothing really seems to have happened. I think the problem with um, being an international manager is unless you do something spectacular by way, by, by way of really you know knocking out a super team or... Um, or imposing a specific style that's never been seen before. I think it's hard. Um, from a Northern Irish perspective, it's amazing what he's done. But if you're a Premier League owner in America or China, you're thinking, does it really rock my boat that much? I don't think it does. David Moyes has gone and taken the West Ham job. That tells you quite a lot. That They think the market's very thin. Even you know They haven't hung around for and put in a caretaker for a couple of weeks just to see who's available in the international market after these playoffs. It's, mm. You know, they've gone for a man who didn't do terribly well at Sociedad. No. Uh, well, David Moyes, I mean, we've spoken about him a little bit. Um, flash forward, if you will, to next May. How will it have gone, do you think, with, with David Moyes there? I think the chances are West Ham would have stayed up. And I say that not because I've got great faith in David Moyes, but basically because it's a good... It's quite a good team, actually, West Ham's eleven when you look at it on paper. And there's a lot of quite mediocre Premier League teams that they should be able to overtake. Um, I think it's quite an underwhelming appointment for West Ham. Not sure it's the right appointment for Moyes as well because it's a a six-month contract. I can't imagine that, um, however it goes, I can't imagine West Ham will be looking to keep him on. Mm. If they go down, I I imagine... Even if if they stay up, I think there's going to be a lot of managers on the market. You know, after... um, after the Euros, maybe, people will be looking for jobs. If I was David Moyes, I would have actually taken a step down. I would have gone to the Championship. There's a lot of big clubs there. What Moyes is, is he's a good organiser on the training ground and in, in kind of in the in the um, upstairs, if you like. He did a good job at Everton with the academy. There's lots of big clubs in the Championship where if you give them 18 months, I think they can come up and and really make a good stab at the Premier League. And maybe it would be... Um, would have been positive for him as well to have a little bit less pressure, right. a little bit out of the limelight, and just kind of relaunch himself. Yeah, a little bit of a reboot for, for, for Moyes as well. Uh, Tom Adams saying, uh, saddest ever story in six words, no longer for sale, baby shoes never worn, but David Moyes, new West Ham manager. Certainly confidence running high there with uh, them giving him that six-month contract and David Sullivan saying, this is a gamble, but we'll see where we are at the end of the season. I believe he will keep us up. Yeah, look, I mean, he's got a very, very powerful ally inside West Ham in Tony Henry, who used to be, uh, he's the director of football at West Ham, uh, and he used to be his uh, his right-hand man up at Everton, um, and he got the West Ham job on the strength of the, the signings that they made at Everton, the likes of Tim Cahill and you know, others who, who made them a pretty com- competitive side, yeah, exactly, mm. Um 
But so he, he will be working very hard to keep Moyes alongside him beyond the six months. But it will all depend on on where they get. And the problem is, it's it's not just a gamble; it's a massive, massive high stakes gamble for for, for David Sullivan and West Ham. Because they have no assets. If they go down, and uh, <laughs> there's there's very little there. They've got a squad of players who presumably won't be held together. They've got no ground. The, the 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 money that they take in from the Premier League is absolutely essential to the entire business case. And you know, as a top six, seven, eight club, then they can achieve great things. They are a highly valuable club. But they won't be worth anything in the championship, and for for Sullivan to be making this kind of an appointment is a big risk. Given that, is a man who did so badly at Sunderland on a squad that you know wasn't terribly bad when when he took it over. But I this think. is a much, I mean, would you agree with Michael's point? This is a much better squad than the one he had at. at oh, well, undoubtedly Light. it is. But you know, how will those players be feeling? There's a, you know, how will they think about this appointment? That's the key to it. Is this is a this is a, a team that definitely needed a change mm. after after Saturday. Slaven Bilic had to go. You know, things weren't right at all. The relationship between him and the players obviously wasn't right. But it need it needs somebody who's really going to inspire them. And is David Moyes that person does he come in with the reputation of a man who's going to galvanise a team will they all be looking to him as the, as the totem around which to, to rally I'm not sure he used to be that guy are there second acts in, in, in football management that's the question yeah, there are occasionally but um, there's sometimes fourth acts even when it comes to your pinkies at Bayern <laughs> at the moment but I, I don't know if I just don't know if this West Ham team have any redeeming features as a as a team? I, I see a lot of really good individuals, but I don't see I don't see a team there. And unless you have a manager who very quickly manages to create a bit of a team mentality and uh, and also tactically make them play as a team, they could be in real trouble. I, I disagree slightly with with Mike. I don't see that many teams in this in this uh, league who are obviously worse than this West Ham side. The ones who are individually much worse are collectively much better than West Ham, mm. you know, the Huddersfields and the Brightons and the Burnleys even. So I don't know if there's really that much room for for mistakes here. I think mm. you know, it's going to be cutting it very thin. There's very, very little creativity in the West Ham team. You take Lanzini out, how do they make their way, you know, how do they provide the bullets for, for a carol? I mean, you could still just stick Javi and just go long. Uh, you can do that, but well, do they, sure, yeah. can they soak I'm up sure the pressure? Are they well organised? He's tiny. To... He's a poacher. You can't, yeah, you can't go can, long for him. No, you He's can not just a target, send man. him over the top. Well, maybe if Handy Carroll's in the side, but but that's yeah. I mean, that's these days. I'm not sure that's a recipe for survival in the Premier League. That's that's true. All right. Well, they do have a bit of a tradition of of sending talented squads down, of course. Yeah. In East London. Um, Yeah. We'll we'll wait and see. For now, let's move back to the other big playoff happening this weekend, as Italy try and make it to the World Cup. In their path, Sweden. It is the glamour tie. So, last night in Birmingham, our special correspondent spoke to Glamour's James Horncastle. James, a World Cup without the Azzurri would be wrong. What are the odds of that happening? Well, you say a World Cup without Italy would be wrong. Most people have never even experienced that. That's because so true. it's 1958 when Italy last failed to qualify uh, for a major tournament. But, considering how unconvincing that they've been in qualifying... Um, there are fears in Italy that uh, they may well miss out. Of course there are fears, especially the way that they've been performing under Giampiero Ventura, or should I call him Missa Ventura, <laughs> and his incredible 4-2-4 formation. Now, there are signs that he's changing, mm. bringing in, for example, Jorginho and Simone Zaza with the with his last set of, of call-ups. Uh, is it too little too late? Not necessarily. I think... Uh He's going to put his principles to one side uh, for this two-legged tie, go away from the 4-2-4 and go back um, to what was successful for Italy at the Euros under Conte and play a 3-5-2. Remember, Italy beat um, Sweden 1-0, although they left it late, an 88th minute from Eder, um, which kind of practically retired Zlatan Ibrahimovic from uh, international football. So it'll be Interesting to see if um, they can get it together in time, bearing in mind that they haven't practiced in this system for a while. But 
I think Zaza has a real chance of starting. Right. Which is interesting. Anyone who recalls his last outing with, with an <laughs> Italian jersey, the, the famous penalty and that. Why is he back in? Why has everyone been clamouring to have him back now? Because um, he is second only to Lionel Messi in the La Liga scoring charts. Um, he matched a club record at Valencia for scoring consecutive games, six. I think he's got eight in his last seven. And he did partner Chido Immobile up front at the beginning of the Conte era as well. Um, he said that penalty miss traumatised him and he played under a black cloud for a long time, including his spell at West Ham. But I think uh, those skies have now cleared and we're seeing the player um, that a lot of people uh, believed in. Um, so, yeah, it will be curious um, to see if uh, he can be the difference maker and redeem himself on the international stage and, and maybe be what Gigi Casadaghi was um, to Italy in 1997 when they were last in the playoff. Um, and qualified thanks to his goal in the second leg at San Paolo. Maybe he can be that figure this time around. That playoff, remember, against Russia, that's when the young Gigi Buffon made his debut mm-hmm. in the Moscow snow. And of course, if Italy don't go through against Sweden, that means we'll never see him at a World Cup again. Uh, France have been to Stockholm and lost in the set of World Cup qualifying. Let's speak to a man who saw that game, Julien Laurent, who happens to be sat right next to me. Julien, how dangerous are the Swedes? Not very dangerous, Jimbo. That's the thing. They're not very good. They they beat France because of a big mistake by by Lloris and an incredible goal by Toivonen in the last minute of the game in in Solna, where Italy are going to play. But apart from that, apart from Forsberg, and apart of being very well organized and courageous and working hard for the team and all that thing, they were not that good. Julien, then are Italy going to go through? See, si. James, no. Exactly. All right, then. Back to the show. Thanks, James. There's a little clip of us doing that interview, by the way, on the Totally Football Show's Twitter feed. Um, and Troy responds out saying, what's the deal with the red cushions on the head? I'm glad you asked, Troy. It's basically an acoustic uh, muffling mechanism. If you're recording interviews in your bedroom or any other domestic setup, I really recommend either a duvet or a pillow placed over the head keeps you a little bit warmer and also just reduces some of that echo. It's all for you, listeners. Italy, Michael. World Cup without them would be wrong? Yes, I think so. Yeah, Good. I'd like to see them there. I'm not sure it'll be with the same manager, but uh, yeah, you want Italy there, definitely. You want Italy there also because if they don't go, we won't see Buffon ever again in a World Cup. Rafa, they're all going. Totti went last year, Buffon now, well, and Pirlo. What's worse, Buffon not being there Yes. or Buffon being there? And playing, not being there, I'm going with and, not being there and playing really badly. And <sighs> but, they've all, but he might his play legacy. well. That's you know, they might play well. Yeah. Yeah. It's Ventura's his... Italy, don't forget. I know, but Miss he's, had, he's had his time. I mean, much as it would be good to see him there, I mean, Buffon's won the World Cup, he can mm. you know, he can disappear into the sunset and he's, he's done his job, isn't he? All right, Sweden lover, <laughs> Pirlo retired. Well, this Monday. Unfortunately, not before he destroyed England in the World Cup. Yeah. Well, that's one of the that's Euros. one of the iconic Sorry, moments Euros, of, yeah. a, of a of a very interesting career. He announced his decision anyway after NYCFC <clears throat> and got knocked out of the MLS playoffs or MLS playoffs probably. Uh, Andy Holt says, "Can we talk about Pirlo? What you all think about what he brought to the game?" It's an interesting question because he evolved far beyond just being a footballer, didn't he? He became a kind of a living symbol of a certain football attitude. Yeah, I must say I found all that slightly irritating. I thought, I thought his book that came out three or four years ago was just dreadfully toy and just nonsense. He couldn't really take it seriously. Well, no, indeed, because um, he didn't really say yeah, any of those yeah, things. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. But, you know, he was a wonderful player. And, um, you know, as Matt alludes to, he became he became very popular in England after that 2012 <laughs> performance, but had been doing it for a decade beforehand, was man of the match in the World Cup final in 2006, yeah. instrumental in that semi-final, of course. And I think I remember him most for uh, the part he played in that Milan team where they just packed the team with creative talents. Mm. Sometimes they played him, Seydorf, Rui Costa and Kaká. And Rivaldo. Well, Rivaldo was playing. No, no, and Rivaldo, when, he, when it first started, and that's what supposedly led Ancelotti to go, how do I get all these people in? Oh, I know, I could stick Pirlo as a very deep-lying midfielder and just sure. let him do it from there. And uh, there were some nice quotes from Gattuso about him saying, you know, I'm not on the same planet as Pirlo. He plays a different game to me, but... 
that attitude is what made Gattuso so valuable. You mm. know, they, in fact, they did have someone just scampering around doing the, the dirty work. And they were always a great combination. Um, and then, to be fair to Pirlo, he went to Juve, of course. Mm. And they didn't have a Gattuso figure, uh, figure. They played uh, Marquisio and Vidal. And then Pogba came in, who were very hardworking, energetic players. But I think it meant... Pillar had to take more defensive responsibility. He was a little bit more isolated mm. um, and adjusted a, to that role really well. Yeah, his ability to evade pressure at Juve was spectacular, it, just as much as his, his famous passes. Um, exciting moments. I mean, his career kind of... It had its kind of highs and lows uh, because early on he was regarded as a very different kind of player and, and certainly at Inter there was a period when he in pre-season was starting up front with Christian Vieri and they looked like being an absolutely electric partnership but I think I'm right in saying it was Marcello Lippi at the time thought no I'm not going to do that I'll go with some of the veterans and sent him off to Reggiana and then down to and then to Brescia where he teamed up with uh, Banjo and Banjo actually his favourite goal of all time is on a it's absolutely extraordinary I mean, the Pirlo ball up front is you know, it's one of those classic Pirlo 30-yard balls over the top. And Banjo kills it with the foot in, the, in mid-run and while killing it, also deflects it past the keeper and then run around. Oh, it's, it's a gorgeous... Yeah, the keeper was uh, van der Sar, wasn't it? Oh, it was Juventus. it? Oh, it was yeah. Juventus, because yeah. It, because, van der, because van der Sar's right reach, isn't it? And van der Sar's so long. And you think, how on earth can he bring it round van der Sar in one touch? But I'm fairly sure it was live on uh, Football Italia, wasn't it? Was it? I'm fairly sure I remember watching it live. Oh, yeah. well, there you go. Anyway, are you a fan, Rafa? Yeah, a a Pirlo memory fan, for you? Yeah. A Pirlo memory just to 2006, how he's head and shoulders above anyone. Mm. He was so unlucky because the voting for men of, for men of the tournament was done at half-time in the stadium. <laughs> and Zidane had had a really good first half. So Zidane um, with um, Cannavaro and Pirlo kind of splitting the Italy vote a little bit. Was, was voted man of the tournament, but mm. it really should have been Pirlo. Capable of, of slowing down the, the, the spin of the earth. I mean, to be able to, to... The time he has on the ball is just extraordinary, and that's, that's down to his touch. You know, anybody who can control a ball with a first touch like his it creates the time, and his spraying of passes just... Is, you know, what a player. The, mm. the, the like of which probably would never have succeeded in England. Do you think... No, I don't think. Can I mean, you not... no, perhaps now, but a man of his generation and age, the closest thing we had to Pirlo was Carrick. Never picked for England because of Lampard and Gerrard. You know, I don't think he would have, because he was, was an age of Ericsson's star-loving, um, uh, celebrity-chasing. Would it be crazy to compare him to a Matt Letizia? I mean, that's essentially the, yeah, the role so. that he began in. Yeah. Um, and Matt Letizia you know, exists, I guess, now as a kind of deeply cult but peripheral yeah. figure. Or Glenn Hoddle. You know, the, the kind of player that we've been crying out for for generation after generation and haven't used enough of. Well, Letizia was more like a... Second striker, number mm. 10. Yeah, was well, that's how Pirlo began, though. Yeah, that's yeah that's how he began. Mm. Yeah, but maybe, you know. Uh, Ancelotti tried to bring him to Chelsea in uh, 2009, actually. I think he was quite close to coming, but uh, didn't work out. Shame would have been interesting to see him here. Certainly would. Because uh, I think Serie A suited him slightly slower pace. Mm. I hear you, Michael. I hear you. Well, Fabregas is a player. He's probably the closest that we have in the Premier League to him now um, in terms of his ability to, to, to create space for himself. Um, and, and play the ball well. Uh, I, so there is in the modern game. I think in in the last sort of ten years, that's that's the case. But I think you go back fifteen when he was beginning. I just don't see how he would ever have ever have succeeded in this right. country under the managers that we have. Matt, who's going to go through Italy or Sweden? Italy, without questions. That oh, really? sounds absolutely right. That they're a much uh, they're a much diminished side without him. <laughs> <laughs> All right then. We've got plenty still to talk about on this edition of the Totally Football Show, Rafa. And after this, it's one of the week's big stories. My name, as if you didn't know, is James Horncastle. And although I keep my hair long, I like to keep my beard short. And when it comes to shaving, I insist on Cornerstone. Cornerstone takes all the hassle out of shaving. You'll never run out of blades again. Just let them know how often you shave and they'll take care of the rest. Get £10 off your first order and find out more about your perfect shave box at cornerstone.co.uk forward slash totally. One of the week's big stories, everybody. Michael Emanalo, technical director at Chelsea, mm. uh, resigning. Now, I must admit, I saw this story four or five times before I actually had the will to click on it and read what the background was. It just... 
It wasn't very sexy for me. What, what am I missing? Why is this significant? I mean, what's the you, bigger if picture? You, if you follow Chelsea, it's significant because Chelsea is this um, kind of enigmatic place where there's a constant jostling for position between the underlings, and uh, this is this is an important story. I don't know how it, whether it affect Chelsea in the long run that much, but it is it speaks to the kind of slightly problematic, dysfunctional setup that they have at the moment that Emanalo felt he could no longer really work mm. within it, um, even though he'd, he'd done fairly well for a long, long time. Although transfers were supposedly an issue of late, so isn't no, it right transfers that Transfers are the issue. Uh, they are the issue. Yeah. So isn't it good then that they're changing the man responsible? Um, not really, because from my understanding, and it is second-hand because um, unlike some of my colleagues like Gabriella, for example, who knows him quite well, I have never um, personally dealt with him. But talking to agents who have, they all really think he's a very smart, clued-up guy, easy to work with, very straight, very honest. You know, that's not something you can say about a lot of people in football. And uh, Marina Granovskaya was doing the actual deal. So, mm. you know, Emanalo would say, I really like this guy, Christensen, for example, you know. We send him to, to Gladbach, but I definitely want him back. He's so good. We will definitely get him back. That's not a judgment call that Marina would have made because she doesn't watch Gladbach very often, I, I should think. Um, but then she does the actual deal. So now without that person... You wonder, you know, will they go back to a more traditional setup where the manager identifies targets? I don't think so. I think Chelsea don't like to work that way, and I think they're right in not doing it. But it does create a bit of a vacuum at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting what this talks about Marina's role. I mean, she she took over the, the chief executive position, chief operating officer, as it had been under under Ron Gourlay, and she's now that empire. You know, the thing the thing about Chelsea, we always used to be very clever in our Guardian reports when I was writing. It was about the criminology of uh, of, of of Chelsea, it's true. studying studying the, the the relationships closest to uh, the Tsar and. Um, you know, she's definitely the winner in all of this. Um, right. Is Conte the loser? No, no. I think he comes out slightly stronger as a oh, result. Does he? Yeah, I think so because okay. I, there's there's a lot of talk that, that Roman's going to be more hands on. I think that he cares a lot about his football club, and I think he really does enjoy the uh, the, 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 the commerce of football. All right. Um, so he's always got that big grin on his face. Moving around the world, Michael, you're hungry for news of who may or may not be making it to Russia. Roman's homeland next summer. In Africa, three places are still up for grabs. Did you know that? Yeah, the, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, you Can go ahead. Can we chat a bit about Ivory Coast Morocco? Please, that, that's that sounds be, the perfect moment. I've just that's said. That's going to be good, yeah. Yeah, so tell us, Ivory Coast Morocco. Yeah, this is a huge game. This is basically a, a, almost a one-legged playoff for the, um, for the tournament. Right. Um, Morocco are one point ahead of Ivory Coast, but Ivory Coast are at home. Um, I think Morocco got a good chance of going through. They've got a very good... I didn't realise how good their squad was until I looked through. And they've also got uh, a manager in Hervé Renard who has won the Africa Cup of Nations twice, including um, with Ivory Coast right. in 2015. So he's going back there. Morocco and, uh, a point ahead. They have plus five and goal difference on uh, Ivory Coast. So uh, the, the Ivorians, the elephants, have to have to win. When you said a one-legged playoff, I, had an, I pictured something entirely different. Sad. It would have been quite fun to watch as well, but never mind. The other, the other crucial game, well, um, Senegal's doubleheader with South Africa on Friday and Tuesday is massive. Senegal battling with uh, Cape Verde and uh, Burkina Faso to go through. Tunisia or the Democratic Republic of Congo are the, uh, is, is the other big question in African football, Rafa. Elsewhere, you've got Honduras taking on Australia. That's fun. And I think this has to be the most exotic one. New Zealand against Peru. We've got Ben Wilson writing in. Hello, Ben Wilson. He says, like all good football fans, the New Zealand fans love an away game and Lima sounds like it will be fun. Some fans have had flights to South America booked for six months in anticipation of this with just a relocation flight within South America to be booked once the opposition was known. Dedicated people. However, their plans, Rafa, have been scuppered by the New Zealand Football Federation who've given the entire allocation of matchday tickets to a travel partner who, get this, are trying to sell them all as part of a four-day accommodation deal, or if you want to buy them individually, you have to get them at double the price, but you get a free scarf thrown in. 
<laughs> so he says sounds they like... spent thousands and thousands of dollars to get to Lima, which sounds like it's a really long way, but then the earth is round, so it might be that once you go far enough to get to New Zealand, you're actually almost at, <laughs> at, at Peru again, are you? It sounds, like a, school day. it sounds like the Jack Warner travel agency. <laughs> it yeah, does. It's a little bit yeah. disturbing, that. Um, anyway, so they're trying to budget... Jefferson Farfan, did you know that, is uh, still the major player for, for Peru after all these years. After all Ex- these years. player. Lovely. Anyway, that game is coming up on Saturday, and I I do hope, Ben, that the New Zealand Federation see reason and and, and sort out their their, uh, travelling fans. Um, It's such a shame to see World Cup business messed up in kind of people just trying to make money off the fans' backs. Who'd have thunk that? Hey, isn't that FIFA trial now underway? Yes, it is. Have you got to... Is that a very dry topic, Matt, or are there some exciting things, including key witnesses getting kidnapped kidnapped and threatened with murder? Yeah, quite, exactly. Uh, This is... You know, this completely justifies the the, the racketeering influence corrupt organisation charges, which is, you know, the recall charges are are, uh, what they do when they pull genuine Tony Soprano mobsters in. Mobsters. Um, So what kind of thing are we talking about? We're talking about witness intimidation. Um, by key, who? Key witnesses by one of the defendants. Obviously, I'm not going to... <laughs> <laughs> even, even in these four walls, I don't think it would be wise for me to, right, to, okay. to say whom. But uh, this the... the, the the prosecutors wanted to hold this behind closed doors because right. they felt that this was a, a, a very serious issue. Uh, and we're talking about one of the very top people in in world football. Wow. Um, and this isn't alone. You know, the, the cuddly one or... No, no not we're him. not talking about Blatter. No, okay. no, no. no. We're talk- we're, we're, and he's not actually on trial. Right. Um, we're talking about some of the, some of the, uh, the senior executives of world football Given in the times s- under Blatter. Given the seriousness of these charges, why is it that the whole investigation and that the people being kind of pulled in seems to have stopped some time ago? I, there was a feeling that yeah. you pull a thread and the whole thing unravels, but it kind of it hit a hitch somewhere. Yeah, well, I mean, they they had an awful lot of... They had to tread very carefully because they're talking about multi-jurisdictional investigations. Um, trying to get the assistance of, of local police authorities has been difficult. For instance, Jack Warner has only finally... The, the decision since since we last spoke about it, only finally has the decision been made to, to extradite him out of Trinidad and Tobago. So, you know, that's been difficult. Um but you know, fair play to the Americans that they have actually pursued this properly. Now I had I had rather lost faith in it, um, but it's not even the only thing going on that I think is of interest in terms of of criminal activity or alleged criminal activity in football. The uh, uh, finally yesterday uh, decision was made in Greece to charge uh, the uh, the owner of of Olympiakos uh, and push him through to trial for for. Uh, alleged criminal match fixing, um, and also being the ringleader of a match fixing syndicate. In what, what impact does that have um, in football terms? Well, in football terms, he has to now. This is a club that's obviously been Juventus's and, and Bayern Munich's uh, opponent in the Champions League. Um, uh, sorry, Barcelona's Barcelona and Juventus in the Champions League, Arsenal. Uh, and, and Arsenal. Yeah, in but this year's past, yeah. but this season. And they, he's going to have to give it up, give up ownership of that club for fifteen uh, within fifteen but days. Does the club not face it, uh, sanctions themselves? If they should do. They, they ought to. But the, the, that's only if the Hellenic Football Federation actually go forward and, and press those charges. But where it's very interesting for for, for, for for the English game's point of view is that Evangelos Marinakis is also the owner of Nottingham Forest, and whereas. He is being booted out of, of uh, you know, by statute, being forced to, to relinquish his shares and control of Olympiacos. There is no equivalent in this country. I was doing my damnedest, and, and people who want to go and look at it, I wrote a very, very impactful piece about him at a time when there were far more serious charges which have been dropped, and I can't refer to because we're in the midst of in sub uh, um, reporting restrictions, but they are available online if you want to go and find them. You know, the very, very disturbing allegations about this individual. Where do you find those, Matt? Where, where? They're, on the, they're on the Mirror website. On uh, the Mirror bit? Yeah. 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 So, you know, have, have a little butchers for that if you want. But he, you know, this is a man who took over Nottingham Forest. The, the, the Football Association and the Football League were very well aware of you know what this guy's past and and the allegations around him were, and still they waved him through as a fit and proper person to own a football club. So now, you know, you've got a guy who is standing trial for match fixing at a time when he owns one of our great clubs, a former double former European champion. And what's even more interesting from my point of view, going into the FIFA thing, and mm. this is sort of just to tie off the loose end, is he 
uh, is his senior vice president at Olympiakos is a guy called Savas Theodoridis, who is the father of the general secretary of UEFA, Theodor Theodoridis. So if they are going to... Uh, it was a brave, event, a, brave, a brave attempt to get through that name. Yeah, quite <laughs> sorry. Yeah, it it tailed off a little in the end. But he... he he, uh, <laughs> no, I find coughing while you're saying it. <laughs> <laughs> but he, you know, will Johnny Infantino, who owes his presidency at FIFA to Theodoridis, as the fixer who got him in there, his former boss when he was the secretary general of UEFA, Theodoridis was his deputy. Will he enforce whatever rules are are, are now required? When, if if Maranakis refuses to give up his ownership of Olympiakos, uh, will they? do what they have always done and step in and ban ban Greece from world football because they want to protect an individual. This is the kind of thing that FIFA and UEFA have done in the past. You know, the, the, they've got to tread very, very carefully because the allegations around or the, the, the scrutiny around that conflict of interest is, is, is going to be very strong, I hope. Wow. More anyway on the, the Mirror website. Uh, any yeah. the, the fact that the Oysters were in court this week, I think, mm-hmm. is that any sign of relief for Blackpool fans potentially? Well, look, Blackpool fans would be delighted for them to to uh, to have to get out of their their, their club, but it's very hard to in the, under under our statute. It's very very difficult to make anybody property property law is is very strong in terms of land and and any asset ownership, so it'd be very very difficult for for them to be forced out of the, the, the owning their club as long as the, the debts are paid then, then could they be forced to problems. appoint independent directors possibly possibly i'm going to reserve judgment on that all right i'm going to reserve judgment okay we'll on a lighter note michael wednesday night you didn't go to a top footballing banter <laughs> night in uh birmingham you went to the premiere of uh, 89 I did, yes. This is um, a film by a friend of the podcast, Amy Lawrence, who's uh, assembled all those um, members of Arsenal's 1989 title-winning side and put together a documentary about it. I'm sure everyone knows the story, last-minute goal from uh, Michael Thomas, etc. But it's a fantastic film. I must say I was... um, wasn't quite sure how it would be put together because it was such a fantastic moment in itself. You can kind of just watch the watch the game and it's a fantastic climax. But um, the way it's built up, I think the involvement of George Graham is really interesting, who um, you know was one of the most successful managers in English football at that time, and and kind of faded from view really without. You know, he's, he's, he's well. There were one or two issues. Well, well, he did, but but he came back. He came back as Leeds manager and Tottenham That's manager. True. Yeah. And then there were years and years where he was forever linked with whatever job came up, and and never took another job in football. And um, he had terrible arthritis. Mm. Interesting to know that, but um, but it's um, it's an excellent film. A terrible and, uh, really is. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna make the joke. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it's an excellent film. It's in uh, I think it's in cinemas this weekend. Um, so yeah, if you're an Arsenal fan or a general football fan, right. then check it out. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Uh, Hornby's in it. Alan Davis. Uh, most of the '89 squad, are they, or the, the key names from them. Yeah, definitely. And in general, they're quite interesting guys to talk to. You know, Lee Dixon, I think, is the main is the main guy. I think was an executive producer. And there's Tony Adams and Paul Merson and. Paul Davis, um, yeah, some interesting characters, yeah. Mm. And as you say, Amy Lawrence, the producer, and I think is, to a large extent driving force in this film. Oh yeah, made. very much behind it, yeah. yeah. And she she plays an on-screen role as well. Does she? Well, I didn't. Well, there's no reason I would know, but it was her last day of school, uh, that eighty-nine day, and she went up to Anfield, you know, having knocked off from school for the last wow. day, which is great. You know, most because of us just go to the park and have a few cans of beer, but uh, <laughs> she went up to see, you know, the most eventful football match in. In living yeah, history, yeah, the, the most extraordinary finish to an English season. We with, still with all due that, respect, to, Sky would have as otherwise. Well, no, I mean, I know that I mean, Man City were playing QPR, mm. whereas this was the direct yeah. head-to-head between the top two. And had I to mean, even I two. was watching, it. and the situation looked lost. No, they'd thrown it away. Arsenal. I mean, you must yeah. remember this. Where were you watching well. that? Uh, with my old man, yeah, yeah, in the uh, in the front room. In the you know, this was one of those rare games. Was it a Friday night? Mm. It was Friday night. Yeah, yeah it was a, one of those rare games that, that, that was televised. Uh, what was I? Fourteen years old or so, and my uh, my old man took me down the pub and got me uh, got me absolutely leathered afterwards. So it's a day that I can remember. It was the first time that that, that had ever happened. No, it was uh, a little regrettable. And, um, but there were positive sides. No, to this come, as mate, well. come on, mate, come on. It's worth pointing old out. Old school fathering, that is. Worth pointing out as well that the, the game was uh, delayed because of there was a two week break um, because of the Hillsborough disaster. You've got yes. these incredible emotional scenes where the Arsenal 
players all come out clutching these big bouquets of flowers and kind of distribute them around the ground. It's an amazing atmosphere. And there's a bit at the end as well where the Arsenal players are celebrating at full time and George Graham's trying to calm everyone down. And I, he didn't say this, but I imagine he maybe felt that Arsenal shouldn't be celebrating too much considering it's only been a month after that disaster. Yeah. And Arsenal um, went straight home, basically, and, and celebrated in a pub, uh, I think, down the road from Highbury. So it was, and they actually travelled up on the day of the game, which is very unusual. Wow. Just in and out. Um, so Not yeah, that long ago, but another era. Yeah, very much yeah. so, very much so. Uh, that film out on November the 11th at Selected Cinemas, that's this, this, this Friday... If you feel like, Michael, that all this talking about films is not for you, then steer clear of the Truth and Movies podcast, which this week uh, features uh, in-depth discussions of not only The Florida Project, but also Paddington 2, Matt. <gasps> wow. How good is it? Do you want to ask me? Tell me. It's Ardman Animation's good. Oh, really? Yeah, it's oh, that's excellent. Excellent. They knocked it out of the park. Uh, let's speak about managers, and then we'll leave you to the rest of your week, listeners. Uh, managers, first of all, item one. Who's just written a book about Jurgen Klopp? Raphael Honigstein. Hello, that's me. All right, so this has just hit the market. If you're not interested in books, <laughs> then you don't want to be listening to the next few minutes. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, Jurgen Klopp, bring yes. the noise. Yes. Why the title, Rafa? Um, just um, thought it's uh, quite uh, fitting for his personality and his. Um, Part, a big part of his management is to create this energy that filters from the crowd back to the players and from the players back to the crowd. Um, that's certainly one of the things that made minds who are really unspectacular, nothing team, suddenly go to the Bundesliga for the first time in the history and actually stay there. And of course with Dortmund, um, took over a, a team that had achieved in the past, but where the, the, the crowd had become so disillusioned with a slow, boring football, it become a very quiet place. And hey, presto! You now they start winning titles again, and mm. uh, of course that is very much the hope, the aspiration, the dream that he can repeat that um, story a third time at Liverpool. No doubt to organise a defence before he's going to win. Yeah, I think that's a bit of a red herring, the whole defence thing, because Rafa, you always say this, but their defence mm. remains a real disaster. Mm. Yeah, but it doesn't. Been there for two it doesn't years. actually. It's a rabble. No, no, it's not. It's just not true. I mean, it's you, not true. It's not true. No, uh, at home it's not true, but away from home it is. Away from home, they've had two absolutely shocking results. Yes, mm -hmm. that is true. But, I mean, how many times can I say it? I mean, you look at the numbers of goals he's conceded over yes. his uh, entire span as a, as, a, um, as a manager. and it's As a manager, yeah, but a Liverpool, yeah, but Liverpool manager. No, even at Liverpool. It's won a game. Yeah, won a game is, is not bad. One a game is not bad at all. It means you've got to, you've got to score two in order yeah, to... Yeah, but that one a game is, is really not a problem. I mean, last year they had 42 conceded and 38, but that included four um, clean sheets at the end of the season. And, of course, they went unbeaten against all the top sides. Nobody talked about the defence then. The big talk was about their struggling against the small teams. Mm. So they couldn't get the results against the Burnleys and so on. So now this year's story is the defence because of the Virgil van Dijk scenario where he really exposed himself to the criticism as soon as the deal didn't happen. Mm. That was the first line of attack. So it's and not a red herring? No, it is a red herring. No, because there is a genuine situation there. As you say, they wanted, they knew they needed to improve the There's a situation, the but the situation is not nearly as bad as it's So what is, if that's up. the MacGuffin, if you will, what is the real issue at Liverpool? It's one of the issues. Okay. It's one of the issues. The real issue, I think, if you ask me, the real issue is that people find it very hard to accept that Liverpool don't win every single game. <laughs> they, they, they might not win a game because they, they don't score enough goals, as they did last season, or they might not win games because they concede too many goals. Um, they are kind of where they are. Uh, again, uh, I feel like I've been saying this for one and a half years. I, I don't think they can expect to be much higher than fourth mm -hmm. in this league. And... Uh, Everything else is just an overreaction. They got higher than that view. with Brendan Rodgers. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they had one outstanding year and then they had a terrible year afterwards. So mm. in, in the end, it's really, it kind of evens itself out. You overachieve a little bit, then you underachieve a bit. You take the average. They're still barely a top four side. I think, he's getting, I think he's getting closer to making them a regular top four side in what is a much more difficult league than it was five, six years ago. Mm. Um, I think the... Again, the history suggests that he knows what he's doing, that he can get results consistently, that he can make a team bigger than some of its parts, a little bit like Pochettino, who's a bit more advanced, I think, in, in, in his progression with, with Spurs. 
but I don't see um, I don't see this 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 idea that Klopp does not ha- know how to defend um, as a big thing because a lot of his teams fans do. But no, I know. But again, I mean, you know, you ha- go back twelve months ago, and the discussion was we don't score enough goals, we can't win against the small teams, and now it's the defense. There's always something. There's always you always want one label. You it's think. like a duvet that's a little bit too short. Yeah, yeah. Is he? There's enjoying... always one. There's always one thing that you want to blame on a team not winning or uh, every game. And I think the more realistic way of looking at it is that Liverpool are not in a position yet to win every single game. Right. Um, they will have some bad results and they will struggle. And sometimes the defense look a little bit exposed. But I don't think you can necessarily. I don't think it holds up to say. You know, their style is so extreme and it's so risky that they are um, leaving all this back space at the back. I don't think actually they play like that anymore. No, but it's not the uh, being extreme. It's, uh, for example, on set pieces, corners, etc., yeah. when it's not the fact that they bombed up the other end. They just don't seem to... No, but even that, the... the set pieces corner came up after, after um, Watford. Mm-hmm. And since then, I don't think they... I think they considered one goal from set pieces and corners. Is he still enjoying himself? He's, he's enjoying it massively. Um, and, and the club really love him and he really loves the club. Um, inside the dressing room, inside the club, I think it's a slightly, slightly more um, relaxed vibe and more, again, I would say, it's a word I use a lot, but realistic assessment of where they are and where they should be and where they can be than um, in the kind of media space where Liverpool are still being seen as a team that by birthright should be mm. challenging for the biggest trophies every single year. I don't think they're quite there yet, but I think there's there's signs that... The good news is, I would say, from Liverpool's perspective, is that FSG buy enough into Klopp to put their money where their mouth is and actually open the purse strings more than it would have done with a manager whose judgment they don't really trust as much. Right. So I think there is a good opportunity to get closer to the big sides, but also be in a position where when, like last season, some of the bigger sides falter, when Man United were misfiring, when Manchester City weren't quite right, to be in that position where you can actually take advantage the way that Chelsea did Mm. last season the way that Leicester did the season before I think Liverpool are moving into that space where they can actually on a good season but when a lot of breaks have to go their way then actually go and maybe be a surprise real contender Mm -hmm. for for the title but it's I I still think it's one and a half to two years away from right anything else about the book because it it, I'm really looking forward to uh Receiving a copy, Rafa. Yeah, looking at the pictures. There are some beautiful pictures for are you there? to look at, James, cool. in case you're not really... What, shirtless uh, clops? Yeah. No, not shirtless, no. Why? Well, he's a very beautiful, big German man, isn't he? Do you think he's I've a never seen man? him shirtless, so I don't know. I defer to your better judgment. In he has a certain Harry Palmer-esque charm to him. I, I would grant you that. Hmm. Now, hmm. he's... One of the things really surprised me that how much control he still exerts over former players who, um, you know, even players that he fell out with um, on the training ground or had a bit of a bust-up, they all, what well, almost all of them said, yeah, I'll talk to you, but I want to ask Jürgen first if I can talk to you. Mm. And I thought that was really extraordinary because um, I would have imagined that some of them would have been very happy to just say, oh, yeah, finally, I can tell you the truth about Jürgen Klopp and how awful it is. But actually, the opposite happened. Even those who... Who he had real bust-ups with, like Mats Hummels, for example. They were at each other's throats all the time in their last uh, one and a half seasons at Dortmund. He says, yeah, I mean, we, we basically shot each other, at each other. We had fights and training all the time, but I absolutely loved the guy. Mm. Which you don't hear very often in, in football because it's either kind of black and white. You know, I totally love him and he's the genius and everything, or he's like a total, you know, horrible yeah. man. What was, the, what was the most surprising thing you discovered while writing this book? There's some kind of semi semi comic, um, intentionally uh, unintentionally hilarious attempts to keep his uh, talks with FSG New York quiet, and how really um, nothing that they did to sort of keep it quiet worked. Right. But still, somehow it never came out. Huh. So the story of that is in the book. Nice one. All right. Excellent. Ha. As as Jurgen himself would say. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> Much better. Is That's it, like the kid out of Simpsons. Isn't it? Yeah. Is it more iconic? His laugh or the no, Al Pacino who? That was a bit more Simpson, but he, his this one would be. <laughs> <laughs> Rafa enjoyed that. Everybody, uh, right? Okay, Matt, do you want to have another go at that Greek name before we leave? <laughs> Theodor Theodoridis. Uh, producer Ben wants you to go have a, have a go at um, the Leicester City owner, uh, Shiva Dana Prava. <laughs> that one is. 
Shivadana Prava. I had to learn that once because he um, he was in something that I was kind of announcing. So and it's like all names, you just break it down into components. And sorry, that, the Thai owner, I think. The is... Thai. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that is <laughs> that is bring the noise, uh, which noise isn't specified, and that's by Raphael Honigstein. Available what now? On Thursday. But you oh, can it's available the, it today being Thursday. Next Thursday. Oh, within a week's time. Yeah. Excellent. All right. And if you, well, while you're waiting, you can always have Das Reboot or any. English of Fußball. There you go. Or a children's book that I did. Yeah, that's true. Tell us yeah. about the kids' book. The kids' book is on treasures. Yes. So famous treasures that have been found yes. uh, over the histories or over the years or still to be found mm-hmm. or mythical treasures that probably didn't really exist, like treasures. El Dorado. Mm. And kind of the story of them is nicely illustrated. It's for kids sort of eight plus. Okay. And um, there's only one football theme in it, one What's football that? story, which is the Jules Rimet trophy and how Ooh. it was stolen and then found again and then stolen again. Available wow. in many good bookstores. Stolen from Germany, of course, in the 1966. That is Welcome another story. Home. <laughs> uh, and that's what's that called? That's called The Big Book of Treasures. Bingo. All right. Thank Slightly you. more orthodox title for that one. Uh, right, excellent. Books, eh? I love them, Michael. And, of course, your mixer is still very much available and riding high on the charts, I should imagine, that chronicle of the uh, tactical evolution of the Premier League. That's right, yeah. Mm. Thanks. Uh, excellent. All right, Matt. Lovely Robbie, to see Robbie, you again. Robbie, you're not yeah, writing a book. You're too busy digging. Yeah. Too busy digging. digging uh, the cold phrase of truth. <laughs> oh, very good. Th- lovely to see you today. Thank yeah. you so much for Thank enlivening you for this. Me. Uh, I've really enjoyed no. it. Anytime, anytime. Michael, lovely to see you as well. Yeah, thank you. And yourself, Raphael Honigstein, and much. you, listener. Uh, we will be back, should you wish to join us on Monday, uh, on the other side of so many interesting international games, games that we'll discuss in the next edition of Totally Football Show. For now, from all of us here, it's cheerio. That was a good pod, wasn't it? Not nearly enough football league, though. Hey, if you've still got some time and you want to listen to something else, give us a go. It's the Totally Football League Show. We had Caroline Barker on this week. She was brilliant. We did a championship special. Oh, we could have been there for hours. The Totally Football League Show. You find it on Audio Boom, iTunes, and, you know, all the other places too.